0: And welcome to episode 179 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we talked about how to start a podcast and our best advice for podcasters, old and new. We had so much material that we didn't get to all of it, and we've actually been thinking about offering an online podcaster training course. Let us know if you might be interested in that, because we think that's something we're going to pursue. This week, we wanted to turn to a recent news story and the attacks on the Internet that made some popular websites difficult or impossible to access.
1: Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Ma Report, we will indeed be talking about attacks, primarily those known as DDoS attacks, and some practical ways to not become part of the problem. In our second segment, we'll be talking about a hybrid approach to artificial intelligence that we're calling lawyer in the middle. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, let's uh, talk about... DDoS attacks in general, including a recent attempt that those of you who are listening might have experienced uh, to some extent yourself. Before we get started, we should say that DDoS stands for Distributed Denial of Service. And what it meant for you last week was that you might have had trouble accessing Amazon or Twitter or Netflix or CNN and hundreds, uh, literally hundreds of other websites. Before we can talk about how it happened, I think we first need to understand what a DDoS attack is, and then we can kind of go into a little bit more after that. And, And once again, Again, Dennis I have positioned it so that uh, you have to go first and provide a definition for us so tell us what is a DDoS attack well I think that the typical way of explaining DDoS attacks is is to first
0: break it down and to just des- do uh, describe the DoS attack so denial of service attack and then we'll talk about the, what distributed means. So the denial of service attack is, is really this notion that if you flood a website with enough traffic, you can overwhelm it. So think about you're going to a parking garage for a, a football game or something and everybody wants to go into the same entrance. Basically, you can cause such a jam up that nobody can get into that parking garage. So that's, that's sort of the simple analogy of of the denial of service attack and we'll get into how these things work and how you combat them but in the denial of the standard denial of service attack it's coming from one computer or one ip address and so the important thing to keep in mind uh, but it's this flood of traffic that just Keeps the good traffic, the bad traffic basically drives the good traffic out. What distributed means is that instead of coming from one computer, one device, one IP address, there's a whole set of IP addresses and devices that this is coming from. And so that ramps up the volume of the traffic substantially. You know, it it just multiplies it. And then it makes it really impossible to block you know, the traffic from a certain computer or device or IP address because it's coming from all over the places. And so these attacks can be quite overwhelming. So distributed means that it's coming from multiple computers and just the, the denial of service typically means it's coming from one computer or IP address. So the ones that we're experiencing the ones that cause the most problems are the distributed ones because that generates just staggering amounts of traffic on a site. So, Tom, how's that for a definition?
1: I think that's a good definition and I'm not really going to add to it other than to say that what's interesting about a both a DOS and, and a DDoS attack but, but we're mostly going to be talking about the distributed version today is that on the one hand, it's not very sophisticated. I mean, it's just throwing a lot of stuff uh, at a website with with spam traffic that legitimate users can't get through. But in able to do it in such a way that it that it either shuts the site down or it really makes it a problem for the public to access it. It is kind of sophisticated because it requires a lot of planning and a good structure to do that. And the way that these attacks usually occur is, you know, there aren't there aren't enough bad guy computers out there to do something like this on their own. And so what they do is they create what you probably heard of before as a botnet, and they go and enslave devices, or in this case devices, but sometimes in the past we've talked about botnets really being computers, uh, that people have taken over vulnerable computers and have harnessed the computing power of that device uh, in order to do their bidding. And so essentially in this case, and the, the attack that came out on October 21st, it was known as the Mirai botnet, uh, it was a number of devices that, not computers, but uh, actual devices that That were connected to the internet and there were quite a large number of them that were enslaved and were basically instructed to start throwing themselves at those individual, actually it wasn't at the websites, it was at the Backbone server, the the company that that provides service to all of these hundreds of websites, which uh, in turn had that effect as well on those particular websites. So that's, I think, the basics for how it happened, do we want to maybe go into a little bit more detail about kind of what was concerning about the attacks and and the fact that they were attacking these devices, Dennis? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things that I wanted to say. So, We've talked in the past about, we did a whole
0: episode on chatbots, and so you hear more about bots these days. So bots is a term that gets used in a lot of different ways. So botnet is sort of classically associated, as as Tom said, with these, these sort of groups of computers or other devices that somebody else, generally through malware, has under their control. And then they can launch these attacks. Of uh, So you sometimes think, oh, they're going to infect my computer with a virus or, uh, you know. Who would care about little old me and my computer? Why would they want to put malware on it? It's because they can use your machine to do something else. And then also, Tom, I think it's worthwhile to say, why in the world would somebody somebody do this? And so the denial of service attacks go back many many years on on the internet and so it's one of these things where you'd say can I take a site down I'm mad at somebody that sort of thing you may also do it where you're trying to extort money from people so you take their site their site becomes inaccessible at an important time to somebody or you can't do transactions and then you say we'll stop the attack once you pay us or you do something like that so so that's typically what's going on it could be the pre- precursor of some other attacks as well definitely if you have a ddos attack going on and you find out about it then you're probably more vulnerable to social engineering as people you know call you and try to help you and you know all those sorts of things so you have to watch that so i think what was concerning about this one and there were several things was that this came from totally unexpected places and it's a precursor of what's what's coming with the internet of things but from my reading of it i think most of the attacks was actually coming from video cameras which is an example of saying anything that's connected to the internet can be a threat vector because it can reach out and can be controlled and I think the, the most important and concerning aspect of this was, uh, I guess there are two things. So one, it was directed at, some, at the backbone and got some, some really major sites, but that almost all of the problem was caused because people were using default passwords that they hadn't changed.
1: And I think that what I've read about the attacks is, you're right, webcams were a big part of it. I've also heard that DVRs were also a part of it. Uh, in the past, and, and unknown to what extent it was in r- currently for this particular attack, um, but there are a lot of routers out there also who have been enslaved because they come out of the box with a default password that people don't change. And so you're right. These devices are, what they share in common is that they're attached to the internet, they only had those default passwords. Some of these devices have what they call hard-coded usernames and passwords, which mean that they're passwords that actually can't change because they're literally built into the system itself. Now, we've talked, and Dennis has already mentioned the, the fact that we're, we're talking about the Internet of Things being a part of this. and 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 when we've talked about the Internet of Things in the past. We've talked about things like uh, the Nest thermostat or your smart light bulbs or the smart door lock, the door lock you can lock when you forget to lock it and you happen to be around. Uh, but, you know, I was listening and, and I will recommend now a podcast called the Internet of Things podcast uh, hosted by Stacey Higginbotham and Kevin Tofield It's a really great great podcast for learning more about the Internet of Things and the different tools that they have. But they had the chief security officer from Akamai on there who I think had a better definition. He said that that really the, the devices that we're looking at here are not really the internet of things, but they're things on the internet. They're things that people would connect to the internet um, and then maybe abandon them or forget that these devices were out there and that they were insecure device. So I think what makes the difference that we need to think about here is what makes it vulnerable is whether it's got a direct connection to the internet or it's connected through a hub or to the cloud. And and I guess the best way to describe this is, is that if a device has a port in it, like a router, there are ports that a router has in order to be able to communicate with the internet. And hackers routinely take advantage of these open ports to be able to invade and get through them. Um, When a device, and I'll use the Nest thermostat because hopefully you've heard about that smart thermostat before, a device like the Nest thermostat doesn't work in the same way. It doesn't have open ports. It connects actually through the cloud. So if I want to interact with it, I use the app on my phone and it connects uh, uh, and goes up into the cloud and connects with a server. It's not a server itself, so it's not as vulnerable to an attack as, say, uh, this router would be or a D, an older DVR or, as Dennis mentioned, the webcams that are out there. And so I think that that's one difference that we want to make sure that there are some devices that really were not that vulnerable. And this is what makes the difference is whether they had this open connection to the internet and some devices do and some don't. And you touched on something too that I think is
0: probably more technical than we want to go into this podcast, but there are several different types of DDoS attacks. So some attack ports, some attack Applications, some just attack the the site itself um, in, in very simple terms. So somebody who's more technical is going to say, wow, you were super vague and, and not totally accurate about that. But we'll give you an idea that there are right. different things that can be happening as we were working on this you know that I've just gone crazy over this uh, this DDoS map which sort of shows the different attacks going on on a world map it's from uh, uh, it's called the Norse NORSE attack map which is map dot Norsecorp.com, and it's you see a map of the world, and you see these attacks and these radiating circles, and looks like laser beams going from around the world. You can see where attacks are happening from a lot in the U.S. right now, as I'm looking. Sometimes in, uh, sometimes from China, but typically the attacks come from inside the U.S. and from China are probably the the most common attack. So I think if you just take a look at this map, you get a sense of how much of this stuff is is going on. And so, sorry, Tom, I just can't stop looking at this map. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, the different types of ways that you uh, defend from these attacks. And, it, and it's, it's sort of worth to me, it's sort of as you step through and think about what's happening, you see conceptually what you want to do and how just pure volume kind of overrides a lot of the the defenses that you would think about. So you might think like, oh, if there's a, a in a denial of service attack, and you say there's one IP address that's sending everything. Well, I can block that IP address. But in the distributed ones where they're coming from, you know, thousands and thousands of IP addresses, you can't do that without really knocking out, you know, customers or good traffic. You could say if they're all targeting a certain my IP address. Well, maybe if I change the IP address or I change to a different server, then I've been able to route around that. But conceptually, those are types of things you could do. But it's not really that easy, Tom. I mean, I think you almost always have to if you're under a serious denial of service attack or the DDoS attack, Tom. I think you gotta be prepared and, and have uh, either third-party help or they have that third-party assistance already in place.
1: Well, I don't know that I completely agree with that. I think that you're right. I think that being able to change an IP address or change a server is not a realistic thing to do. But I think that the best advice that I've read about and that I've heard about is really to start focusing. I mean, if, if, if this particular DDoS attack arose out of attacking the devices that we use that are connected to the internet then that's where you start. You go to the devices that you use and you examine them one at a time and make some determinations about them. Now the unfortunate thing is it's really hard to tell whether you have a compromised device. There's going to be we're going to have a list that I'm going to post on there. There's a, there's a service called IoT Scanner that you can use to see if your devices have open ports so you can uh, protect against one version of, uh, of a DDoS attack. Um, there are lists of devices that are popular hosts for this type of malware, so you can check uh, your device against that as well. Um, but you know, if you find out that, that you have a device that has hard-coded usernames and passwords, really the advice that I'm seeing most often is get rid of it, burn it. It's, it's, it's not useful. Even if in those cases where you might be able to wipe the malware off the device, because that's usually what happens is they inject some sort of malware into these the webcam. Or the DVR. Even if you're able to remove it, um, the fact that these bots are out there, they're scanning so fast. The thinking is, is that you're going to get it back onto that device as soon as possible. And so, what you really want to do is to have a device that meets a couple of qualifications. So, one, not have a hard coded password. You want to make sure that it's something that. Once you set it up, or as you're setting up, it forces you to change the password. It doesn't give you the option. It doesn't say if you'd like to keep admin as your password, you can do that. So you have to change the password. There have to be over-the-air updates. One of the things that makes these current smart devices and and, and IoT devices better is that they receive updates over-the-air and they're constantly being updated. The router that I used to use all the time didn't have that. I had to force a firmware update, and I have to go in and do that whenever I thought about it um, so make sure that it offers those over the year updates and then also has regular security patches because even though we might think that some of these devices are not as vulnerable you never know when the hackers are going to find a way to get through to some of these devices so I think that the best defense is starting maybe, maybe we'll say that it's a good offense making sure that the devices you have are as secure as you can possibly make them
0: Yeah, and I think there's two parts of, two aspects of the defense. So one is if I'm thinking about my website and how I protect it from DDoS attacks, part of it is that I may not even notice it. Like how often do we check our own websites to know whether anybody's getting through to it? Um, You're probably going to notice it on an e-commerce site because you're not getting transactions. And that's where you may start to avail yourself of the... The different types of, of services out there. And then the other key part is I think you do not want to become part of a botnet yourself where it's your camera, your computer, your router that's, you know, part of a big attack that's where you're going like i don't know why i can't get to netflix and really your your own stuff is is part of the problem so i I think tom's comments there definitely make sense i've also seen things recently saying that just getting a new router every couple years is really important so i don't know how old most people's routers are that came with their you know their internet service in their their house, I, and how often that firmware gets upgraded, or any kind of update, or whether people even know what the passwords on them are anymore. So there's just a bunch of things out there that you you need to be concerned about, and and I just think the more you can do not to be part of the problem becomes uh, you know one of the best things you could do, and then realizing that you're under attack is probably something you're going to find out. Some way, unless you're, uh, you know, somebody's going to let you know that. Unless you're doing some kind of, of monitoring or regular testing, and I and I think it just becomes also on an e-commerce side, it's going to become part of your security audit. Is to say, what are the things that are out there? So I don't know, Tom. That's what I had in mind. I mean, I think this is a really great topic that people need to know about. It affected us. It's kind of like a an area of security. Not everybody thinks that much about, but we think there's more DDoS attacks to come.
1: Oh, certainly. I mean, just after this whole Mirai botnet came out, the people that were responsible for it released the source code into the public, which I think all but guarantees that other attacks are going to come. And I think that they are still happening around the world, even though the major attack that many of us may have experienced is over. You're certainly showing from that Norse website that denial of service attacks are happening, whether those are related to the Mirai botnet or are different, is not clear. Um, But I think that that that's the nature of the DDoS world. I think that they are always trying to find new ways and better ways. But if you think about the fact that at, at how far things have evolved from just this plain old denial of service attack, they continue to evolve and security continues to evolve to meet it. And so I've already read a number of articles about companies that are developing protections uh, that are coming and that, that there's one guy who has posted a prototype for a Competing botnet that can essentially inoculate a Mirai botnet to do it, and so I think that um, having it out there also spurs the good guys uh, trying to find out the, the right ways to deal with it. So I'm encouraged. I think that uh, we individually need to play our part to make sure that we're making smart decisions about the devices that we use and and are protecting our things appropriately. But I think that um, I don't I don't think it's a Chicken Little the sky's falling type thing. I think we just need to be careful and trust that's the people. People who, who are trying to look out for us are continuing to do a good job about that.
0: Once again, in security, it's a notion of layers. So you, you have different, different layers of protection out there. And I think that, again, broadly and generally speaking, in the DDoS world, you're talking about a cloud service that kind of protects your servers and provides filtering and a, a, a layer of protection. So that's the one side. The other thing that's really interesting about this and how this evolves, Tom, is uh, is what I'll call botnet as a service or DDoS as a service. So apparently with some of these botnets, so whatever thousands of computers or devices that you can launch these things from, you can buy time to use them for like $200. So if you wanted to launch a DDoS attack of your own because you're mad at somebody, for $200, you could get, you know, the ability to use uh, one of these botnets sitting out there
1: to, to launch your attack. So never underestimate how clever people can be out there. It does not surprise me one bit that profit is a significant motive of things like this. All right, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor.
0: Looking for a process server you can trust?
1: And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. There's been a lot of
0: discussion about artificial intelligence and lawyers lately, including a podcast we did earlier this year. Much of the talk tends to go toward the extremes. Will lawyers be replaced by AI soon? And the question is really easy to answer dismissively. I mean, AI is not going to replace lawyers for a long time, if ever. But that's actually, to me, not even... An interesting AI question. So there's an AI concept called human in the middle, and we wanted to adapt that to lawyers in AI and refer to lawyer in the middle as a concept. So Tom, you put the definition burden on me in the first segment, so I'm turning the table.
1: What do we mean by lawyer in the middle? Well, I'm expecting you fully to tell us that because I'm getting the sense that our B segment is becoming about topics that I <laughs> that that are that are out there that I just, like the average lawyer, have trouble wrapping my head around. So here's the best way that I can describe it and then Dennis, I'm gonna need for you to take the ball and, and run with it and actually do a good job of describing it. The way that I understand lawyer in the middle is not relying upon AI to do the whole job, but make sure that there's a lawyer present to go Guide the process. And so, if you think of a lawyer actually standing in between an artificially intelligent agent on both sides of it, so that an artificially intelligent agent is providing feedback and data to the lawyer, so that the lawyer can make decisions to provide orders or commands to another AI agent so that that AI agent can then go out and do things that helps to, uh, I guess, continue to keep humans within the the process, but make it not just a purely artificially intelligent activity that goes on. So that's as far as I get in the process, Dennis, I need for you to bring it home and to explain uh, not only what I meant when I said that, but also why lawyers need to care about this.
0: Well, I think that for lawyers who are partners in firms, you think it is the infinite. Associate pool, right? So that the associates never wear out. so you can have them do stuff for you and work with you. But sort of all kidding aside. i I think this is a really important notion because, as I said, people are going like, well, is AI going to replace lawyers? I think that the answer is AI is always going to augment humans. And then we're going to look at the tasks that we could do. and and Tom, I think you put it kind of perfectly, is that we need to have the human or the lawyer in the middle to say, okay, so, how do we direct the input that we're getting from the intelligence? And then also say, okay, now the output needs to go to these other things where the next action or analytics need to occur. And then the feedback has to be interpreted by the lawyer in the middle. And so I think that if you start to say, I look at the notion of augmentation of what lawyers do, of figuring out what tasks are most appropriate for lawyers to do, what tasks are most appropriate for computers or machines or software to do. Then I think the whole area of artificial intelligence gets really interesting. And it goes back to my, one of my favorite lawyer topics is like, what is it that lawyers really do well? And what does it make sense for lawyers like us to keep doing? And what does it make sense for the computers to do for us? And so this is a really interesting concept. The human in the middle thing is is starting to become, you see it more often, certain sense with, You know, the IBM's Watson with the chess programs and stuff like that, where it's the combination of artificial intelligence plus the human that is where the most interesting things are happening. So that's what I have, Tom. But I think it's now time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, you want to take it away?
1: I will take it away and back onto more familiar turf for me. Um, So my parting shot uh, this uh, episode is called 60DB. It's an app. It's right now only out for iOS users, but I'm sort of hoping that they also come up with something for Android. And it's a podcast app. It's a podcast app that um, the best way to describe it is it's a little bit like having Flipboard. If any of you have used the Flipboard app. It's like Spotify Discover. There's a playlist in Spotify that that tries to bring you new content all the time, Um, but it's both of those together in a podcast app, and what it aims to provide you with is short-form podcasts, podcasts of 10 minutes or less that you can listen to in bits and pieces on any subject that you'd like, and it tries to learn from you so that as you choose things to listen to, I don't know that you can subscribe to anything. It's kind of just providing you with things, but it will increasingly get better and better and smarter about serving you the kinds of stories that you want. And I'm intrigued by this because you know, sort of a teaser, uh, Dennis and I are thinking about bringing more of a short form podcast to you listeners in the future. And I like the idea of being able to kind of see what others are doing with the format. And it seems like the 60 dB app is the perfect way to do that. It's right now in the iOS app store.
0: Sort of sounds like podcast listener in the middle as well to me. (laughs) So I feel like I'm doing the, the two parting shots on a regular basis now, Tom, but I just a really quick one. So you and I are both involved in law technology today, and the, the board of uh, Legal Technology Resource Center, the ABA, has been doing a roundtable on a monthly basis, and they've collected them all in one easy-to-find URL which is going to be www.lawtechnologytoday.org slash category slash roundtables. And so we've been doing these for more than a year. So great group of people answering questions in roundtable format. So totally worth checking out. And then the other thing, Tom, I wanted to recommend to you specifically as well, because we've been talking about how we wanted to do more automation. And so one of the places you look is a, the workflow app in uh, in iOS. And so there's a a podcast I've liked that talks about how you can do really practical things in the iOS environment. And so they did the first one on an app code Workflow, which we have talked about before. It's called The Basics. They're going to do a couple of these. It's episode number 22. And... It's technical, but if you're interested in learning how to use this automation tool to do things, this, I think, is the tutorial that really made sense for me. And I wouldn't listen to it while you're you know, riding your bike as I did it, it's probably best to listen to it while you're actually trying to do something. But at the end of this podcast, you will figure out a way to automate a way of entering text in English and translating it to Italian. So there's like a way to uh, accomplish something. And they they walk through the basics of the workflow app. And I just thought it was a really, really good podcast. And I'm looking uh, forward to the rest of the series.
1: Well, Dennis has talked about the Canvas podcast before. I highly recommend it uh, just for those of you who use iOS. It's a great podcast to listen to. And I will also highly recommend the Workflow app. I've used it. I don't use it as much as I probably could or should, but it is, I think, a very powerful way of getting things done in the iOS world. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Ma Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast. In iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile, and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile.
0: And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about the podcast.